Hello and welcome to the reading of the business record for Friday, April 9th, 2021. I'm your reader, Susan Hack. We'll start with the cover story this week. Green is the word. From electric cars to solar and stormwater, how Des Moines is prioritizing sustainability in its clean energy goals. By Michael Crum. Four months after the Des Moines City Council approved a resolution calling for all the city's homes and businesses to run on 100% clean energy by 2035, work is moving forward to begin the process of reaching that goal. We spoke with Jeremy Karen, the city's sustainable program director, to get an update on what's been happening in the city's mission to reduce its carbon footprint which includes a reliance on renewable energy 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Clearly, the hard work comes now, Karen said. That hard work will include building a climate action plan, a master planning process that could take 18 months, he said. The city is currently in the process of developing a request for proposal with hopes of kicking off the planning process shortly after the start of the next fiscal year on July 1st. We are in the process of working with Mid-American Energy and other community partners to identify solutions to help start moving us in that direction, and we're looking at opportunities to implement renewable energy solutions across the city's portfolio that might help us speed up that process of reaching that goal, Karen said. There's a lot of things we're exploring and hopefully in the next couple of years we can start implementing some concrete solutions to move us in that direction, he said. Karen said the development of a climate action plan could be fairly wide-ranging and address climate-related issues across sectors, such as energy, transportation, natural resources, and equity. One thing the city is currently doing is taking delivery of 11 new Nissan LEAF electric vehicles. It previously purchased four of the cars, and after those cars proved successful, the city council approved the purchase of the additional ones, which were paid for out of the city's fleet replacement budget, Karen said. They make financial sense for the city, he said. They're cost competitive with internal combustion engines, and the maintenance costs over the lifetime of the vehicle are typically significantly lower, so from a budget standpoint, they make sense. The four cars the city already has are being used by the Neighborhood Services Department and have been assigned to inspectors for use in their official duties. Karen said the city is also evaluating opportunities to electrify other fleet vehicles like pickup trucks and heavy equipment. Those technologies are still being proven and developed, so we're waiting for some viable options, said Karen, who noted that Des Moines Regional Transit Authority introduced seven electric buses to its fleet last fall. The city also received funding from the Volkswagen Settlement Fund to install electric vehicle charging stations in some of the city's parking garages. The automaker agreed to settle a complaint by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency that said Volkswagen violated the Clean Air Act with vehicles sold between 2009 and 2016 that were equipped with, quote, defeat devices, end quote, 
designed to perform differently during normal operations than during emissions tests. The city received two grants totaling $30,000 to install additional charging stations in the downtown area. There are currently 16 electric vehicles charging stations in seven garages, with three more planned for the 5th and Walnut Garage. The VW settlement will allow for the installation of additional charging stations in the 3rd and Court and 5th and Keough parking garages. Citywide, we're looking at opportunities to provide additional charging infrastructure and where we can best meet the needs of electric vehicle owners throughout the city and make it accessible to the public, Karen said. Other initiatives the city is involved with include the benchmarking program, established in 2019. That requires property owners with property over 25,000 square feet to report their energy and water use to the city annually. Des Moines is one of 17 cities in the country to use the program, Karen said. Currently, only city data is public, but under the program, private property owners' data will be public by 2022, he said. The goal of the program is to help the city develop more targeted incentives and programs to help property owners invest in those properties. The city is also reviewing the efficiency of its own properties, Karen said. While the city has been able to find efficiencies and savings through recommendations found in a Mid-American Energy Company audit, Karen said there are still opportunities and newer technologies that can be implemented. The city is currently incorporating solar energy in the new 215,000-square-foot Municipal Service Center 2 that will be built to house public works and solid waste departments. Solar energy is also being incorporated into the city's new $5.5 million animal control center. Karen said earlier this year, Beyond that, we have other buildings and properties where there's a lot of value in us looking at larger solar arrays that might be able to serve multiple facilities. But we also want to figure out if there's an opportunity now to integrate storage into that. Storage will be a key component to reaching the goals outlined in the Council's resolution, he said. To meet the goals, we need to figure out ways to store energy for when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, and use that to power city facilities and community assets, Karen said. Katie Rock, a representative of the Sierra Club's Iowa Beyond Coal campaign, said that the city's resolution gives it the strongest clean energy standard in the country and that the next step is, quote, accountability to Des Moines' carbon-free standard, end quote. Part of that will be Mid-American Energy setting a timeline to achieve its goal of providing 100% clean energy to its customers, she said after the resolution was adopted. Representatives from Mid-American said they welcome the work that lies ahead in helping the city achieve its clean energy goals. Reaching Des Moines' goal of 24-7 zero-carbon energy will require significant investments in new technologies that are in various stages of development and maturity, a statement from company representatives said. Mid-American, which operates five coal-fired plants in Iowa, has retired four units at two locations in the past several years, and company representatives said more than 80% of energy supplied by MidAmerican to its customers 
comes from renewable sources. Other sustainability activities the city is involved in include the development of a food security task force, which is initially looking at urban agriculture and how to make it easier for residents to grow their own food throughout the city. Later, it will be exploring food access and eliminating food deserts in the metro, said Karen, who serves as the task force's chair. The city is also partnering with Central College, Invest DSM, the By Degrees Foundation, and North High School to address stormwater management challenges. The project, funded with a Microsoft Community Empowerment Grant, gives students exercises they do in the classroom that teach stormwater management best practices. As part of the project, students act as the design and engineering firm to improve stormwater management in the Oak Park neighborhood. The students, with the help of experts from Invest DSM, RDG Design, and the Des Moines Metropolitan Planning Organization, began developing concepts that will be presented to the Oak Park Neighborhood Association on April 13th to get public input and hopefully choose a concept based on that feedback. For the rest of the semester, they will be refining that design and working with public works and city engineering to turn it into a constructible project, Karen said. He said the goal is to build off the revitalization efforts currently underway in the Oak Park neighborhood. While the primary goal of the city's resolution, adopted January 11th, is to reduce the city's use of energy produced by coal, city officials see the potential for economic development, too, Karen said. Increasingly, companies are being pressured by their peers or their customers to adopt these types of goals, he said. Ours was inspired by Google committing to this goal in 2019, and so we also see this as an economic development tool to bring in more of those tech companies, he said. Some of that may be found in energy storage, Karen said. Maybe this is a way we can attract more storage-related businesses to the Des Moines area. Our next story, 40 Under 40 Alumnus of the Year, David Stark. Unity Point Health Des Moines CEO reflects on two decades of leadership by Joe Gardiaz. In 2001, David Stark was just getting settled in as the Chief Operating Officer of Iowa Lutheran Hospital in Des Moines when he was recognized through a relatively new awards program launched in 2000 by the business record 40 Under 40. Stark, who now leads a much larger piece of the same health system as President and CEO of Unity Point Health Des Moines, again joins an elite group of honorees this year, this time as the business records 2021 40 Under 40 Alumnus of the Year. For many years, Stark was among the youngest healthcare leaders in Iowa. He was 27 when he was named COO of Iowa Lutheran. In early 2003, at the age of 31, he was named the Chief Operating Officer of Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines the largest hospital of what was then called Iowa Health System. He took on that role in addition to his responsibilities as COO of Iowa Lutheran. In a February 2003 interview with the business record, 
Stark acknowledged that he was relatively young to have been given such responsibilities, but said his age has no bearing on his abilities as an administrator. Yeah, I am young, the 31-year-old Stark said. Leadership has no age. Stark later led the charge in Unity Point Health's growth in the western suburbs, leading the Certificate of Need application in 2007 for a new West Des Moines hospital, and then overseeing construction of what is now Methodist West Hospital. He has also been President and Chief Operating Officer for Blank Children's Hospital and, most recently, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer for Unity Point Health Des Moines. He was promoted to his current position in July 2018 upon the retirement of his predecessor and former boss, Eric Crowell. Stark and his wife, Becky, have four children, Kira, Ainsley, Kale, and Marin. He began his career at Iowa Lutheran in 1995 as an administrative fellow, a management training program that grooms leaders for hospital administrative roles. The Fort Dodge native had had just received a master's degree in hospital administration from the University of Iowa. He is a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives and serves as the current board chair of the American Heart Association, Iowa. He is a past chair of the Iowa PBS Foundation and also serves on the board of the Iowa Hospital Association, the Greater Des Moines Partnership Executive Committee, and the boards of the Principal Charity Classic, Grand View University, and Des Moines University. He is also a member of the Des Moines AM Rotary Club. Two early mentors introduced Stark to hospital management, one of whom was his older sister, Julie Manis, who at the time was executive director of the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago and is currently regional CEO for Ascension Health in Indianapolis. The second was then the CEO of Trinity Medical Center in Fort Dodge, Tom Tibbetts, a close friend of the Stark family. I've been fortunate to have many mentors, Stark said. Among those mentors were two former Unity Point Health Des Moines chief executives, Eric Crowell and Crowell's predecessor, Jim Skogsberg. Having at least one good mentor is a useful piece of advice that Stark has for any young leader particularly those who have been recognized as a 40 under 40. With that recognition also comes great responsibility, he said. My advice to them is, prepare to be the mentor. You need to embrace that and pay it forward because other people have done it for you, he said. Although Stark has led various pieces of Unity Point Health over the years through many significant changes, among them a system-wide rebranding from Iowa Health System, a new West Des Moines hospital, the tumult of the Affordable Care Act, and shifts toward accountable care and value-based medicine. The coronavirus pandemic stands out as the biggest challenge yet that he has encountered. There were a lot of other big changes that we had as a health system over the years, but those were all planned, he said. The pandemic, no one had planned on that. It happened to us, he said. One of the biggest themes that came through for Stark, particularly during the earliest uncertainties of the pandemic, was the creativity and resilience of the healthcare teams as they rose to meet each challenge. There are so many stories, he said. 
One that occurred early on was the shortage of personal protective equipment. I remember the creativity of our team to make face shields out of hundreds of old transparency sheets that we had laying around that used to be used for overhead projectors. Before PowerPoint presentations, there were actually tabletop devices used in the early 1990s in which business people would prepare transparent slides that were projected with a bright light onto a conference wall screen. Stark, who serves as a role model of civic engagement with multiple responsibilities, considers civic leadership a quintessential part of being a good leader. I think it's critical. I would say it's a core competency of any leader. You truly have not fulfilled your duty if you aren't involved. It's like paying our civic rent. There are so many things that volunteer organizations do for our communities. We've got to be involved with volunteer leadership, he said. The past year has brought, men has brought Greater Des Moines together more than any other time period that Stark can recall. I can't underscore enough the level of community collaboration I've witnessed in the past year. When I think of the collaboration that we've had as a health system with Mercy One, Broadlawns, and others, I can't tell you how great it is to have organizations that work together like that. I'm really proud of that, he said. In our next story, Suddenly Hungry. Systemic inequities, stigmas, and maintaining awareness, focus of Iowa Stops Hunger panel discussion. By Michael Crum, quote, giving out food does not solve hunger. It solves hunger for a day, end quote. That was one of the messages shared during a recent Iowa Stops Hunger panel discussion. It was the third virtual panel discussion of the Iowa Stops Hunger Initiative, launched last summer by Business Publications Corp. and its publications, The Business Record, DSM Magazine, and IA Magazine. The March 11th discussion, titled Suddenly Hungry, featured five panelists. Nalo Johnson, Director of the Division of Health Promotion and Chronic Disease Prevention for the Iowa Department of Public Health. Deanne Cook, Executive Director of United Way of Iowa. Mike Miller, President and CEO of Riverbend Food Bank in Davenport. Rebecca Whitlow, Food Pantry Network Director for the Des Moines Area Religious Council. And Clint Tweet Ball, Executive Director of Matthew 25 in Cedar Rapids. The discussion was moderated by BPC President Susanna DeBaca and Michael Crum, a senior staff writer for the business record. The hour-long discussion touched on several topics revolving around hunger, including how food banks and food pantries have had to be resilient and adapt to the increased need for food during the pandemic while coping with fewer volunteers and resources, challenges that lie ahead as the effects of the pandemic continue, and the stigma that is often associated with seeking help when a person is food insecure. Here are some of the highlights. Who are the new people using the food pantry and food assistance systems? Miller. Whatever your stereotype is of someone who is hungry, just please come and meet them. 
Volunteer at a food bank or food pantry or any food distribution site. Just meet people, pass out food, and you'll find they're just regular people, just like you and me. It'll change your life forever. Whitlow. They're your neighbors. They're the families struggling because their kids are not receiving school lunches. Their hours have been cut. Most were managing their lives perfectly fine, and all of a sudden they have to find a new way of making ends meet and feeding their families. Tweet Ball. Everybody should make it a personal goal to have a real relationship with a kid or an adult that's hungry. Because once you have that face that you connect with, that story you connect with, it changes your motivation and pushes you further than you would otherwise go. Focus on policy. Cook. Giving out food does not solve hunger. It solves hunger for a day. We have to get involved at the policy level to say, why are so many people hungry? It's because they don't have opportunities. If they had opportunities to support themselves and go to the grocery store and buy and choose what they want, that would be their first choice. So how do we move toward that world? Johnson. We have seen about 14,000 brand new people to our network, which is a real concern for us. They had jobs. They were able to take care of their needs previously, and now they need food assistance. But we've also seen an ebb and flow related to SNAP benefits. When those benefits increase, we see fewer people needing assistance. When stimulus checks go out, if people have money to buy their own food, they usually choose to do that. But we're concerned when all the stimulus, the increased SNAP benefits all go away, that additional 14,000 people we see on top of our regular clientele will continue to need assistance. Future of Food Insecurity Post-Pandemic Cook, looking at our counts, the last 90 days of calls and how many of those were related to food insecurity, it was double the prior year period. It's still significantly higher than it was before the pandemic in terms of people reaching out to either find a food pantry or to find assistance with purchasing food. Whitlow, I do have concerns that people will, in general, think everyone is immunized, the pandemic is over, and everyone is back to normal. During the recession of 2009, we saw our level of need went up and it never went down again. I'm hoping that isn't the situation, but it would not surprise me. I think it's going to take one to three years for our economy to recover from this. Miller Had COVID not happened, we probably would have called a press conference at the beginning of 2020 to announce that for the first time since the Great Recession, Food insecurity had finally reached below 2008 levels. It had a big jump in 2009, and then we've been whittling away and finally got 10 years later to below 2008. And then COVID happened, and it went higher than any of it. Even if we were all immune tomorrow, we could be in for another 10 years of this. What gives me hope is there is greater awareness than ever before, and our job is to sustain that awareness following COVID. Hunger and System Inequities Tweet Ball We're all starting to feel a little better and more hopeful, 
So I think there's going to be this huge psychological push to feel like we've returned to this great place and things are good. And we won't necessarily want to deal with all the systemic inequities that remain. We in the nonprofit world and the policy world are really good at talking about things in nice voices and problems in a way that slowly moves to incremental change. But I think we're going to need to remain engaged at the level of the streets activity we've seen in the past year, where people have just said enough of system inequity, things need to change, and the only way this will continue to be spotlighted is the average ordinary citizen says, we want this to change. Johnson. It speaks to the interconnected nature of other social determinants and poverty in our community. We can't just be discussing hunger and expect to see that all our community needs are going to be met. This is a multi-layered, multi-sectorial discussion. Miller. This really ties into the equity discussion that's taking place nationwide. Black Americans are two and a half times less likely to have enough food than white Americans. And there is nothing about the color of someone's skin that should determine whether they have enough food. So somewhere, as part of addressing this whole food insecurity and hunger issue, whatever it is that is broken in our society that causes that to be true is central to fixing the hunger issue. Our next story, Des Moines Area Hotel Property Values Fall 30% by Kathy A. Bolton. For over a year, more than half of the Des Moines area's 13,000 hotel and motel rooms have sat empty, a result of the economic shutdown caused by the pandemic. The sudden drop of hotel guests caused revenues to plummet and employees to be furloughed or laid off. In March, the Polk County Assessor's Office released information showing a 30% decline in assessed valuation of the county's 123 hotel and motel properties. From a total $634.4 million in value in 2020 to $450.7 million in 2021. Individually, the Hilton Des Moines Downtown's property at 435 Park Street fell to $29.3 million in 2021 from $41.9 million in 2020, assessor data shows. Adventureland Inn at 3200 Adventureland Drive in Altoona saw its property value slip to $23 million from $32.8 million in 2020. Nationally, the value of hotel properties dropped between 20 and 40 percent, Polk County Assessor Randy Rippiger said. We know that our market is different from other markets across the United States, but we think the effect from the pandemic was pretty universal across the country, he said. The large decline in property values is justified, Craig Walter, Executive Vice President of the Iowa Lodging Association, said. Our number one activity is getting guests in the doors, he said. You can't pay the bills if you don't have people coming in the doors. It makes sense that the property values went down. The values of the properties aren't as good as they were before the pandemic, he said. The decline in property value will mean that hotel properties will generate less property tax revenue for taxing entities such as cities, counties, schools, and others. 
In addition, the decline in overnight guests has meant a drop in hotel-motel tax revenue used to attract tourists and others to Des Moines and to provide financial support for organizations with ties to recreation and cultural activities. The drop in valuation hurts, but it wasn't unexpected, said Clyde Evans, West Des Moines Community and Economic Development Director. I think there's a lot of pent-up demand of people wanting to get out and do some traveling, he said. However, lodging industry leaders aren't predicting an immediate return to pre-pandemic travel and hotel occupancies, although there are glimmers of optimism. In March 2020, the average occupancy of Des Moines area hotels was 34%, and the average daily room rate was $86, according to information provided by Greg Edwards, president and CEO of Catch Des Moines. The average occupancy inched up to 39.3% this past March, although the average daily room rate had slipped to $84. In February, the Des Moines International Airport saw 9,100 more travelers pass through its gates than, did, than it did in January, but travel to and from Des Moines is still more than 50% below where it was before the outbreak of COVID-19. You're listening to the reading of the business record for Friday, April 9th, 2021 on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. Returning to our story now, Edwards told the Des Moines City Council this week that Catch Des Moines, which includes the Greater Des Moines Convention and Visitors Bureau and Des Moines Area Sports Commission, had set a goal of booking 220 events in 2021. We really have been struggling to meet that goal up until the last couple months when we're starting to see some upturn in bookings, he said. For example, it was recently announced that in May, the new Lauridson Skate Park on the downtown Des Moines Riverfront will host the 2021 Do Tour competition and festival. The event is expected to attract more than 300 of the world's top male and female skateboarders. USA Gymnastics and AAU basketball tournaments have recently been booked, as well as the Nike Tournament of Champions that will be held in July, Edwards said. Most of our occupancy is based on either activities that we are getting in here or leisure travel of people who want to get away, he said. Since March 2020, when the pandemic shut down much of the hospitality industry, 377 events have been canceled in the Des Moines area resulting in more than $317 million in lost revenue for the local economy, Edwards told the Des Moines Council. The fallout from the canceled events devastated the local hotel industry, he said. In July and August, hotel occupancy in the metro area averaged 49% and 53% respectively, according to information provided by Edwards. Before COVID, Occupancies ranged between 60 and 75 percent, depending on the time of year and events that were going on, he has said. In addition, the average daily room rate last July and August was about $86 in the metro area, compared with nearly $140 before COVID. During the past year, about 10,500 of the estimated 21,000 people who worked in the industry were laid off. Edwards told the city council. 
We are starting to see some upturn in the occupancy now, most of which is occurring over the weekends, he said. Mike Whalen, founder, president, and CEO of the Bettendorf-based Heart of America Group, which operates eight hotels in the Des Moines area, said his company's properties are seeing an increase in travelers with ties to youth and other sports and weddings and leisure travel. As we get closer to herd immunity and the vast majority of seniors are vaccinated, you'll see travel kick in, and I think it's going to be fast and furious the second half of the year, he said. But, he added, the hole in our world is business travel. Until the business community that is telling their white-collar business workforce to stay at home and not do any traveling for business changes course, it's not going to return to normal, he said. Many of the Des Moines area's hotels rely on business travelers to help fill rooms, especially during the week, Edwards told council members. He said the area's major corporations expect to begin bringing employees back to the office in the third and fourth quarters. Maybe then they may start doing some more travel, but the jury's still out, he said. During the past year, many banks deferred principal payments on hotel-related loans, but required interest to be paid, sometimes at a lower rate. And while the Federal Paycheck Protection Program helped with payroll and some other expenses, fixed costs such as utility payments and maintenance remained. Costs some properties struggled to pay, said Jennifer Cooper, Vice President and Manager at Bankers Trust Bank. It's not surprising that the value of hotel properties took a hit this year, she said. The property's value is not only tied to the value of the land and building, but also to the financial strength of the business. Value is created by cash flow, she said. When the cash flow goes away, the value goes away. Financial institutions, like hotel property owners, are in a waiting game, she said. We are all waiting to see if things start to come back. We may be fooling ourselves, but I think we're all feeling like the June-July time frame, once the bulk of the population is vaccinated, that things will start to come back, she said. Once hotels' cash flows begin to improve, property values will also grow, Cooper said. Even if occupancies begin returning to pre-pandemic levels, it will likely be a while before banks and other institutions are willing to invest in new hotel projects, Cooper said. In the past year, Bankers Trust has been approached by developers interested in obtaining financing for new hotels proposed in the Midwest. We passed on them, Cooper said. If the hotel can't be occupied and be fully stabilized, I don't think there are any banks that are going to do hotel deals. At least six new hotels are proposed in the Des Moines area by entities vying for ability to use state sales and hotel-motel tax money to help pay for projects proposed in their communities. Included is a new hotel at Merlehay Mall that would be attached to a proposed 3,500-seat arena. A 150-room, eight-story hotel is proposed near a new outdoor stadium at 200 Southwest 16th Street in Des Moines. A 125-room hotel is also proposed between Ingersoll Avenue and High Street in Des Moines. Hundreds of new hotel rooms were added in the Des Moines area in the past three years. 
Among them are the 330-room Hilton downtown Des Moines, which opened in 2018, the Revel Hotel in Urbandale, Hyatt Place Altoona, and Fairfield by Marriott in Des Moines, all of which opened in 2019, and the Surety Hotel in downtown Des Moines and Home to Suites by Hilton across from Drake University, which both opened in 2020. We've had a tremendous amount of hotel development in the last couple years, and it's probably overdeveloped, said Walter of the Lodging Association. It's going to take some time for that occupancy to catch up to where it was before the pandemic, he said. Any new hotel development will take occupancy away from existing properties, he said. To build a new hotel now is certainly a greater risk than it was 18 months ago, Walter said. As more people are vaccinated against COVID, they are becoming more comfortable with traveling. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at the start of April issued an updated advisory saying that fully vaccinated people can travel safety, safely within the U.S. The advisory includes traveling by airplane. In February, more than 98,400 people traveled to or from the Des Moines International Airport a 57% decline from a year ago, but more than the 89,500 who passed through the turnstiles in January. We're starting to see more upticks in travel and demand, said Riley Hogan, a vice president at CBBE Hubble Commercial. Events like the Nation National Mountain Dew Tour, youth sports events, the Des Moines Farmers Market, and others will spark increases in overnight stays at hotels, he said. You can see that from where we were in last May and June that things are starting to improve, Hogan said. We'll continue to see those upticks that will get us back to where we were in 2019, he said. Walter said it will likely be a couple of years before hotels return to the occupancy levels that they were experiencing in 2019 and earlier. He said the key, particularly for hotels located in downtown Des Moines, is for business travel to return to pre-pandemic levels. It's going to be upwards of two years or so for business travel and business conventions to return to the same level as we had 18 months ago, he said. Next, Bridging Iowa's Digital Divide by Gigi Wood. Working remotely and schooling from home during the pandemic in 2020 highlighted the need for improved broadband internet access. Iowa ranks 45th in the nation in broadband access and has the second slowest internet speed nationwide, with an average download speed of 78.9 megabits per second according to broadbandnow.com. High-speed internet is rarely offered throughout much of the state and only 18.5% of Iowans have access to affordable internet plans, which is below the national average of 50.1%, according to Governor Kim Reynolds' office. In December, the Federal Communications Commission awarded $143 million to 11 broadband providers in Iowa through the Digital Opportunity Fund Phase 1 Auction, a federal program focused on increasing broadband access. Nearly all rural locations eligible for the award 
will receive broadband at download speeds of 100 megabits per second and about 85% of eligible locations will receive gigabit service, according to the FCC. To be considered broadband, a connection must have a download speed of at least 25 megabits per second and minimum upload speeds of 3 megabits per second. About 35% of Iowa households lack this 25-3 benchmark for broadband speed, according to the governor's office. Earlier in 2020, Reynolds funneled $50 million in CARES, Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act funding, to improving connectivity in the state. As part of her 2021 legislative priorities, Reynolds proposed a $450 million investment by the state to improve broadband access. The program would incentivize private providers to invest in broadband infrastructure to be partially repaid by grant funding. Lumen Technologies has invested more than $2.7 billion in broadband infrastructure in Iowa cumulatively and now operates more than 450,000 connections and nearly 9,000 fiber route miles throughout every region of the state. Connectivity is obviously critical and this past year has shown that to all of us, said Taylor Tepel, Director of Government Affairs and Public Policy for Lumen Technologies formerly CenturyLink. Improving broadband access for rural Iowa, while important, has been cost-prohibitive for private providers to take on alone. The challenge that exists out there is this large rural area that historically has been uneconomic to serve. These are expensive technologies, Tepel said. He said the governor's broadband initiative is a tangible step forward. The move could not only improve connectivity infrastructure, but strengthen economic development in Iowa. I think that what you're seeing is real leadership by the governor and the legislature and state leaders who are continuing to drive really smart policy that is beneficial to businesses in general, he said. What they're pursuing right now with this broadband grant program that the governor has proposed and that the legislature is working through right now is extremely aggressive in a positive manner. I would say it's one of the most aggressive programs being presented in the country and will be a game changer for the state of Iowa. It is going to drive investment into these areas that historically the business case didn't exist to be able to get down to those really, really high cost areas, he said. Tepel said Lumen Technologies is committed to continuing to invest in Iowa's broadband infrastructure. Another connectivity provider, AT&T, has also invested significantly in Iowa's infrastructure. According to Dustin Blythe, Director of External Affairs for AT&T Services in Iowa and Nebraska, the company has invested nearly $110 million in Iowa in capital expenditures between 2017 and 2019. Nationally, AT&T invested more than $105 billion from 2015 to 2020 in wireless connectivity. AT&T wants to credit Iowa policymakers for the steps they've taken to create a positive environment for investment, Blythe said. In 2015, legislation supporting macro towers to support our wireless network was enacted. 
Then in 2017, the legislature passed legislation allowing for a statewide regulatory framework for the deployment of small cell technology cellular improvements, he said. As of six months ago, 99.9% of Iowa's population is covered by the AT&T mobile broadband network, Blythe said, following several improvements to infrastructure. Providing access in rural areas, however, remains a challenge, he said. Areas that still lack high-speed internet often pose unique challenges, such as difficult terrain, sparse population, and limits of technology, which combine to create a barrier that few providers have been able to overcome without outside funding, Blythe said. Support from the federal government can tip the scale and create a business case in favor of deployment, but only if the requirements that come with that funding are reasonable and clear, he said. One of AT&T's investments in rural connectivity is its work with the First Responder Network Authority to build and manage FirstNet, a nationwide high-speed broadband communications platform for first responders and public safety agencies. The platform uses boosted Band 14 spectrum set aside specifically for FirstNet. We look at Band 14 as public safety's VIP lane. In an emergency, this band, or lane, can be cleared and locked just for first net subscribers, Blythe said. The pandemic has also underscored the lack of access in Iowa to health care services in some rural areas, said Ashley K. Thompson, Director of Governmental and External Affairs for Unity Point Health. With the pandemic came concerns for some of our patients who are fearful or seeking care in their local clinic or hospital but were unable to access care through telehealth because of limited broadband access, said Thompson, who also serves as a board member and executive committee member of the Iowa Rural Development Council and as a board member for the Iowa Rural Health Association. High-speed internet is an important tool in the use of telehealth, which allows doctors and other healthcare providers to connect with patients in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities, she said. For many Iowans, and in particular those living in rural communities, broadband serves as a critical gateway to accessing healthcare, Thompson said. With statewide and national shortages of providers like psychiatrists and neurologists, for example, the use of technology like telehealth can bring these important physical and mental health care services to Iowans who would otherwise not have direct access to these types of services in their homes or local hospital or clinic, she said. Without a reliable broadband network, Healthcare providers are unable to connect with patients in their homes as well and see firsthand how patients are progressing, whether that be physically or mentally. Ensuring that Iowans and healthcare providers have universal access to fast, affordable broadband will help remove barriers to accessing life saving care and addressing social determinants of health through telehealth services, Thompson said. Access to broadband is a critical step in putting all of us, regardless of whether we live in an urban, suburban, or rural community, on more equal footing, she said. One of Iowa's largest manufacturing companies, John Deere, has been at the forefront of improving connectivity for the agricultural industry. 
As agriculture becomes more competitive, farmers have increasingly turned to technologies such as robotics, sensors, aerial imagery, and GPS to become safer, more profitable, efficient, and environmentally friendly. Farmers manage a complex set of data each season that influences the decisions they make on the field, from spring tillage to ground compaction, to number of seeds planted, soil conditions, spray applications, yields, and more. An average farm can have more than 350 billion data points to con consider when trying to produce the best yield, said Ryan Krogh, Senior Product Manager for Connected Fleet at John Deere. Some of these larger operations are moving fleets across multiple fields, getting the people trucked here. And that's it for today's reading of the business record for the week of April 9th, 2021 on IRIS. You can find this recording online at iowaradioreading.org. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.
This is Tom Hatton with an Irish short take from the book A Culinary History of Iowa. And the first article we're going to read from the book is entitled Exploring Iowa. Located in the heart of America, Iowa is the land between two rivers, a region of the Midwest distinguished by a surprisingly rich, diverse cultural and culinary history. Between the forests of the eastern United States and the grasslands of the Great Plains to the west, Iowa's gently rolling landscape extends westward from the Mississippi River, which forms the state's entire eastern border. The Missouri River forms the western border, making Iowa the only U.S. state with two parallel rivers defining its borders. Rivers were the early highways, bringing explorers, trappers, traders, and settlers to the Iowa prairie. Centuries before the Europeans arrived, however, various Native American tribes, including the Sac, Fox, Sioux, Iowa, Nisquaki, and others, lived, hunted, and farmed across the region. The meaning of the name Iowa depends on who you ask. Traditionally, it has been described as an Iowa word, meaning the beautiful land. Although others say that Iowa itself is the French spelling of Ayuawa, a name meaning sleepy ones, a name given in jest to the Iowa tribe by the Dakota Sioux. Living off the land to find the food and farming traditions of the tribes like the Iowa, whose history is carefully recreated at living history farms in Urbandale. Iowa farmers raised corn, beans, melons, and squash. Women did the farming in the Iowa culture, while men were responsible for hunting and making tools. Iowa families were subsistence farmers, raising just enough for their family to survive throughout the year and having a little put away in case of a bad year. The Iowa had separate summer, winter, and traveling lodges. Bark houses called Nachachi kept the Iowa cool during hot summer months, while winter mat houses called Chakiruta, made from layers of sewn cattail leaves, protected the Iowa from harsh winters and stayed around 50 degrees inside. While traveling on hunting expeditions, the Iowa lived in a Chibothraji, or teepee, made from buffalo hides. Their villages also contained sweat lodges, food drying racks, cooking areas, work areas, hide scraping rocks, pottery pits, and gardens. At Living History Farms, historical interpreters at the 1700 Iowa farm discuss hunting, hide processing, fur trading, tool making, gardening, food processing, and the roles that Iowa men and women played in each. Interpreters used both recreated bone and stone tools and reproduced trade items to perform daily tasks. By the era of the 1700 Iowa farm depicted at Living History Farms, the first Europeans had seen the land that would become Iowa. Had history taken a different course centuries ago, Iowans might be known for their unique brand of French cuisine with a distinctly Midwestern flair. In the late 1600s, European explorers began paddling up and down the Mississippi River, passing along Iowa's eastern border. The first to visit Iowa were Frenchmen. Louis Joliet led a crew accompanied by Father Marquette, a Catholic priest. In 1673, the expedition arrived in the area that includes Pikes Peak State Park near the Iowa town of McGregor. It would be almost 150 years after Marquette and Joliet sailed along Iowa's eastern border before white settlers began moving inland to farm Iowa's incredibly rich topsoil. In the meantime, trappers and traders began exploring the rivers that fed into the mighty Mississippi. 
the French established some trading posts that would grow into Midwestern cities, including St. Paul, Minnesota, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, and St. Louis, Missouri. In the 1780s, a young Frenchman named Julien Dubuque learned that there were French there, there were rich deposits of lead ore on the west side of the Mississippi River near Prairie du Chien. Lead was valuable because it was used to make ammunition for guns and cannons. Dubuque lived among the Native Americans in the area and mined the ore. Dubuque set up lead mines near the location of the city that bears his name and lived in the area until he died in 1810. And that was an excerpt from A Culinary History of Iowa by Darcy Doherty, Malsey, and other offbeat stuff by Eric Jones, Dan Coffey, and Barrett Thorkelson.